This morning, I would like to preach a sermon on the doctrines of grace. This is something we've done often here, and we do preach about the doctrines of grace, but to have one sermon devoted specifically to that is not something that we we practice often, though we're glad to do it. This is something that we believe. We believe the Scriptures teach this. And uh, we've been studying this, actually, in our Sunday school class, but we've been studying them individually. And what I'd like to do this morning is to bring these doctrines of grace together in one message so we can better see it as a whole. And I hope that it will be a, a refresher and a reminder to you. Some of you are not able to attend the adult class, your teaching classes, or for some other reason you're not able to be here. So I hope it will be a refresher to you as well. Uh, we believe these doctrines of grace are clearly taught in the Bible. The Bible is the only rule for faith and practice. The Scriptures alone are our authority, our supreme and final authority. And we believe these things are taught. Now, the doctrines of grace are better known as the five points of Calvinism. Now, that might scare some of you. I realize that. It scared me a long time ago when I was a young Bible college student, and, and, I, uh, and I fought against it. Uh, men that I loved and respected, they said it was a doctrine right out of the pit of hell. Well, that's a strong term, and young Bible college student, he doesn't want to follow a doctrine right out of the pit of hell. So I fought against it in my mind, in my thinking, in my conversations with others until the Lord showed me this is exactly what His Word teaches. I'm thankful that He revealed these things to me long ago and that I've held to them ever since. They're clearly taught in the Bible. Uh, the five points of Calvinism are essentially five biblical doctrines concerning the salvation of sinners. It can be easily remembered by the acrostic of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, it's been jokingly said that the Arminian flower is not the tulip, but the daisy. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Well, even most Arminians that I know believe that, no, once he loves you, he loves you still. But these five individual points form a consistent and cohesive whole. They stand together or they fall together. They're five biblical doctrines which magnify the grace of God in the salvation of sinners. That's why they're called the doctrines of grace. They are five doctrines that cluster around the doctrine of salvation. If you just turn for a moment to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll see the strong emphasis of the Apostle Paul on the grace of God in salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. He said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
Grace, we understand, is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. When Paul here says, not of yourselves, he's reminding us of the true nature of grace. That our salvation from beginning to end is due to God's grace, not to our strength. John Murray, who was a wonderful professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia many years ago, he said this, he said, In reality, we deny the truth asserted here when we introduce at any point in the whole process of salvation a decisive autonomy on the part of man. If salvation at any point is contingent upon some contribution which man makes, then it is at that point of ourselves. And to that extent, it is not of grace. But what I hope to show you from the Scriptures this morning is that these points underscore this verse right here, that it's all of grace and not of ourselves. This will rob you of any glory in yourself or in any man. But if you properly understand these things, it will cause you to glorify God for your salvation or for the salvation of anyone, including your children. These five points are called the doctrines of grace because they exalt the grace of God in salvation. They demonstrate that salvation is truly not of yourselves. Now you say, I'm a Christian. Of course I believe that. But then when it comes down to why are you a Christian and someone else is not a Christian, you often will say, because I chose to follow Christ and they did not. Which is true. We come to Christ because we want to. But why do we want to? Why does the other person not want to? Is it something in you? Or is it something in what God has done for you and in you. Well, the first point of the doctrines of grace is total depravity. This certainly doesn't sound flattering to man, especially in a day when men are incessantly insistent upon self-esteem and I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, no one wants to offend anyone. But this is the teaching of the Bible regarding man's natural helpless condition since the fall of Adam. When Adam, the first man, as our representative, the representative of the the entire human race, when he fell into sin, he fell from his original state of righteousness. But he was not acting on his own behalf. He was acting on behalf of the entire human race. Do you believe that? Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.22, As in Adam, we all die. What did he mean by that? Well, Adam was created upright. But when he was tempted, he fell from that state of original righteousness. He was acting as a representative of mankind. And so what he did, we did. He said, I wasn't even there. I wasn't even born. I wasn't even thought of. 
you were still there. He, he acting as your representative. And so when he sinned and when he fell, the whole human race fell. Did you know that's the why the world's in such a mess it's in right now? It's because we are all born sinners. You're born a sinner. People have the idea that you can just teach your children how to live and they'll, they'll be perfect little children. But it's not long before you find out they're not perfect at all. They're sinners just like you and just like your parents and just like your parents' parents all the way back to Adam. Because when Adam fell, we all fell in him. We inherited from Adam the guilt of his transgression. We're condemned. We're born condemned and under the wrath of God. But also we inherit from him his now sinful nature. He was born upright, but he fell. He no longer has this righteous character and nature, but now he has a sinful nature. Well, this doctrine of total depravity says that we are born totally depraved. Now, that doesn't mean that every man or woman or boy or girl is as bad or wicked as they could possibly be. It means, though, that sin has so invaded man's entire being that he has become altogether corrupt. Now, I say his entire being. I'm referring to his mind, how he thinks his affections, how he feels, and his will, how he acts. His mind, the Bible says, is darkened. Would you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at several passages. This isn't taking one passage and expounding that one passage, but it's taking many passages. This is taught essentially throughout the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Apostle Paul, speaking of the natural man, and by the natural man, he means how men are born. How they are born into this world. Not the man who's saved by God's grace, but the natural man. The natural man, he says, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So here he's speaking about man's mind. It has been darkened by sin. He doesn't receive the things of God. Why? He thinks they're foolish. Now, are the things of God foolish? Of course not. God is righteous. God is full of wisdom and knowledge. His ways aren't foolish, but man thinks they are. And if you look around the world, men think that God's ways are foolish. They're foolishness to him. That's what the natural man thinks about the preaching of the cross. If you just look over the page in chapter 1, verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, if a man thinks something is foolish, does he want that? Not at all. He thinks it's foolish. That's what he thinks about the cross. Now, if you know anything about the gospel, you know that you can't be saved unless you embrace what the cross teaches. 
that Jesus Christ died on the cross, the just for the unjust. He took our sins upon Him and He was nailed to a tree. He paid the full price for our sins. The natural man hears that and he says, that's foolish. That's foolish. Their minds, you see, are darkened and blinded to spiritual things. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see that the devil himself has a hand in this as well. That he darkens man's mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves your bondservants. So he's saying here that this is what the devil does. He blinds their eyes, that blinds the their minds so that they cannot see the things of God. They don't listen to the Gospel. So we see that man by nature has a mind that has been darkened because of sin. Also, his affections have been corrupted. His desires, when I speak of his affections, I mean what he likes and what he doesn't like. His likes and his dislikes, his desires... You see, the Bible teaches that the natural man does not even desire the things of God. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says this, This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You see, love and hatred, that speaks of man's affections. What does he think about the light of the Gospel? He's foolish and he hates it. That's why he doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to come. He hates the light. He hates Jesus. He loves his sin. He loves things he should hate and hates things he should love. But that's his condition. Man was created by God to enjoy Him and to love and to honor Him. But sin has done a terrible thing in his mind and in his heart. One of the Puritans, Thomas Boston, said, the natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced. He is a spiritual monster. His face is toward hell, his back towards heaven, and therefore God calls him to turn. He loves what he should hate and hates what he should love, joys in what ought to be mourned for and mourns for what he ought to rejoice in, glories in his shame and is ashamed of his glory, abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. That's man's natural condition. Now, I don't mean that every man expresses it in all the same way or to the same degree. But every man feels this way about the gospel. 
Now, he may like to go to church. He may like to sing songs. He might like to go Sunday school growing up and those kind of things. But when it comes down to it, he does not want Christ. Furthermore, not only is his mind darkened and his affections displaced or misplaced, his will is in bondage to sin. Men often speak about having a free will as if that was a no-brainer. But by this, they usually mean that men have the ability to choose right or wrong, good or evil. And in the matter of coming to Jesus Christ for salvation, they say man, of course, has the ability to come to Christ or to reject him, to say to Jesus yes or to say to him no, that his will is neutral. Is that what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach that man's will is kind of neutral? He can go left or he can go right. Doesn't matter. He just he has to make a decision and choose. Well, the Bible teaches that we are born slaves to sin. Now, what does it require? What does the gospel require of a sinner? It says that a sinner must repent of his sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But think of it for a moment. Repent of his sins. He loves his sins. He loves darkness rather than light. Why would he repent of it? Why would he turn from it? The cross is foolishness. Why would he turn to that? Why would a sinner turn from what he loves to what he hates? How or why would he turn to what he hates and despises? You see... Man is free, but he's not free from himself. He's not free from what his heart wants. He does exactly what he wants, but the problem is what he wants is wrong. What he wants is not the answer. Turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 6. Show you what Jesus said about natural man, or by any man for that matter. In John chapter 6, beginning in verse 44, he's speaking to those who are murmuring against him. He says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, that's an interesting verse, but notice he's speaking about man's ability. Can. The word can is a word of ability. And what does he say about man's ability to come to Jesus Christ? Jesus offered himself, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Come, he says. But now he says here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You see, the greatest and the most powerful and sincere preaching in the world will never convince a natural man to come to Christ. You see, they heard here the greatest preacher ever. And they were doing what? Murmuring against him. Murmuring against him. Men heard the greatest preacher and what did they do? They crucified him. They crucified the King of glory. In Psalm 14, the psalmist says, The Lord 
looks down from heaven among the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's a pretty strong language, I realize. But we need to see what our condition really is. And if we come to Christ, it's not because we just decided on our own that that's the best thing we ought to do. And we we know that sin is bad and He is good and we turn to the good away from the bad. You see, if a sinful man with a totally depraved heart is ever to turn from his ignorance, which he thinks is wisdom, from the sin he loves to the gospel he thinks is foolishness, and to embrace it from the heart, God must do something. God must take the initiative. Which brings us to the second point of the doctrines of grace. And that is unconditional election. This means that God has elected or chosen certain individuals unto salvation. Now, before you get angry and, and reject what I'm saying, you have to admit, if you, if you know your Bible at all, that it teaches election all over the place. It teaches election about the nation of Israel or, or Abraham or, or Christians. It speaks of God's Christians as the elect. That's one of the names for a Christian, the elect. They're called in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, a chosen generation. Chosen. By whom? By God Himself. They were chosen. You want, you can go home and just, you don't have to get out of concordance anymore. You just go to whatever app you have and type in the word election. And it'll pop up everywhere. Look up chosen. It'll pop up everywhere. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I do realize as I'm saying this, this is a difficult doctrine. I wrestled with it and many of you did before you came to see that this is what the Bible teaches. But it's difficult when you first hear it or even after you've heard it for years. It's difficult because... This just seems to go against everything we've been taught. Uh, In Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen, notice what Paul says. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So it says right there, God from the beginning. Now, what does that mean, from the beginning? The beginning of what? He's saying from the beginning of time, God chose you. God who exists in eternity had a plan, a plan of salvation. And it says that He chose you from the beginning. His election is eternal. God's election is personal. He's writing to Christians and he says, God has chosen you. Now, some have tried to explain this away in various ways. They say that 
<coughs> they say that uh, it's referring to nations and not individuals. Well, what are nations but the union of a multitude of persons? You're still talking about people, aren't you? First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.4 Knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. God elected you personally. I heard one preacher try to explain it away. It seemed like he was getting close to his understanding of it. And he said, you know what? God just loved everybody so much He just chose everybody. Wait a minute. <laughs> what does that say? It says nothing, actually. If he chose everybody, then why are some saved and others not? You would have to say that the reason is in them, not in God. But this teaches that God has chosen certain ones to salvation. Which I hope it's making you think, well, why would he choose one and not another? Why would he choose all? I don't know why he wouldn't choose all. But I know why he chose and why he didn't choose. He didn't choose because there was any good in you or in me. Was there something in the man that moved God to choose him over another? Some say, yes, he looked down, he was in eternity, and he looks down through a tunnel of time, and he sees that when a certain one, Mark Skeels, was presented with the gospel, that he would believe. So God says, okay, I'll choose Mark Skeels. Why? Because he would believe in me. Actually, he's saying, I'll choose him because he first chose me. That's the reason. And I'm not going to choose this person over here because when they were presented with the gospel, they said no. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. I won't choose him. I'll choose those that choose me first. That's not taught anywhere in the Bible. When you think of it, if it was, then there's a reason. There's a condition for their election and it's found in the person. There's something good in them. There's a lot of other problems with that sort of teaching. One is, didn't we all say no when we first heard the gospel? Now, maybe there's some that didn't. But most of us, we spent years saying no, 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 rejecting Him. Charles Spurgeon said, when he first came to my heart, did not I drive Him away and do despite to His grace? Yes, we all did. There's nothing in man that would move God to choose one over another. In fact, the Bible teaches, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, that even faith itself is the gift of God. So he sees faith in one person. Why does that one person have faith and not the other? Because he gave the one faith and not to the other. Faith is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Jesus said to His disciples in that upper room before His crucifixion, John 15, verse 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. The Bible says, as we read from Psalm 12 or 14, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. There is none who seeketh after God. No, not one. He didn't choose us because we would choose Him. Why did He choose one and not the other? Now, I don't know the answer to that. But I know it wasn't anything good in the man. Then we would have room to boast, wouldn't we? 
If you turn over to 1 Corinthians again, chapter 1. Paul wants to make this as crystal clear as he can. In the Corinthian church, there was the the problem of pride. Pride uh, man takes in himself. That he's accomplished something. And Paul is going to correct their pride. And he does so in verse 26 by asking them to consider their calling. Consider your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. You see, we can't pat ourselves on the back for our salvation. Just look around, He says. He didn't choose you because of anything good in you. In fact, He went the other way. But then we come to the third point. Limited atonement. And this addresses the question, for whom did Christ die? Now this one people uh, attack very vigorously. They think this is the Achilles heel of Calvinism. This is easy to disprove. Look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. There, that refutes it right off the bat. But it doesn't. It doesn't say that in John 3.16. I mean, it says what I just said, but it doesn't mean that Christ died for every single individual. Now, we would rather call this definite atonement or particular redemption because we believe there was a particular design and intention in Christ's death. What was Christ intending when He died on the cross? What was God the Father intending when He nailed His Son to the cross? We believe the Bible teaches that He died for His elect. Those whom He chose from the beginning. Those whom He purposed to save. He died for them. He actually took their place and paid the full price for their sins. He did more than just simply make salvation possible and available. He actually secured the salvation of His people. You remember when the angel came to Joseph and told him about Mary and she's what's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you shall call his name Jesus for what? He shall save his people from their sins. His people is a very important term and concept in the Scriptures. That's again, those whom God has chosen. From the beginning, God chose a certain people for His own possession. And the Bible says that He gave those people to His Son. And He went to the cross to save His people from their sins. It speaks in a particular term in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, that Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. Jesus in John 10, 15 said, I lay down My life for My sheep. 
particular people. He even said at one point to the Pharisees all, you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. You're not my sheep. But here in John 10, I lay down my life for the sheep. Definite atonement. He he died for them. But then there's irresistible grace. The the fourth point of Calvinism. The, The irresistibleness of God's grace. Another term we like to use is the invincibility of God's grace. When He saves a sinner from his sins. Because when He comes to the sinner, the sinner is all those things we've described. His mind is darkened. His affections are corrupt. His will is bent not to God, but away from God. The Holy Spirit needs to do a work because He must now repent of the sins He hates, the sins He loves, and turn to Christ whom He hates. God's Spirit must do a work within. And we call this irresistible grace. That's when the Almighty God extends the power of His effectual grace to save an individual, when He does this, He does it. It actually works. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say something about resisting the Holy Spirit? That's what Stephen said when he was preaching in the book of Acts. He's preaching to these people. They didn't want to hear the message. And he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. We're not saying the Holy Spirit can't be resisted. No, we're saying He is resisted. He all, they always resist. We resisted. I resisted. As Spurgeon said, when He came to the door and knocked at my heart, did not I drive Him away? I resisted. I'm sure most of you can look back and you remember those days you said no to Jesus Christ. You said no. I don't want to follow Christ. I don't want to be among those Christians. I want to do my own thing. Live my own life. But something else happened. As Spurgeon said, then he said, I must. I will come in. And he turned my heart and made me love Him. He turned my heart and made me love Him. J.I. Packer said, grace proves irresistible in that it destroys the disposition to resist. That natural disposition to resist and say no. Instead of not seeking God, now they want Him. We come freely being made willing by His grace. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father... Remember first he said, no man can come unless the Father draws him. And then he says, all that the Father gives me, those chosen ones, will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. In Romans chapter 8, there the Apostle Paul gives this unbreakable chain of salvation he speaks first of God's foreknowledge, and it doesn't mean looking down through the tunnel of time, but he means he, he loved them beforehand. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. So all the way back in eternity from predestination to glorification, God is working. 
It's an unbreakable chain. That irresistible grace. And aren't you glad that God came back when you said no? Aren't you glad that the hound of heaven did not stop pursuing you? Aren't you glad that it was He who called you by His grace? He doesn't call everyone in this sense. He calls all men everywhere to repent. That's what they should do. That's for their own best interest. To turn and come to Christ. But this effectual calling is for those whom the Father has given Him. He calls them with this irresistible grace. And then there's the perseverance of the saints. The final point of Calvinism. <coughs> Excuse me. As we, as we saw this morning in the Sunday school class, this is more than the doctrine of eternal security that once saved, always saved. Now, we do believe that. Once a person is saved, they are saved. That's never going back. But what this means is they're going to continue on. They're going to keep following Christ. They're going to keep believing in Him. They're going to keep repenting of their sins and looking to Christ. They're not going to give up and go back. Why? Because God has promised that He will preserve them. He will preserve them. 2 Thessalonians 2.14, that verse we were looking at earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> but from the beginning, God chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You see, you're going to keep believing the truth. Salvation is more than an irrevocable title to heaven. It is unto salvation. It is unto holiness. Christ gave Himself for the church, Paul says, that He might sanctify her. He's going to continue working. He's not going to abandon the work that He started. There are verses that tell us that very thing, don't they? Paul said, I am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation, He will save His people from their sins, from beginning to end. He is the author and the finisher of faith. God preserves those whom He calls. Well, the application of this doctrine, there's many applications. This isn't just to argue with people. This isn't just go argue with your Arminian friends and, and show them how many Scriptures you know and, and how you can outwit them. No, this is to have a practical effect in our lives. It ought to cause humility and praise. This is the most humbling doctrine to man. But it's also the most exalting doctrine to God. It strips away every last shred for boasting. We don't have anything we can boast of. Why am I saved and another one not? Sometimes within, an own, within your own family. There might be a brother who's saved and another who's not. We find that in Scripture, don't we? Esau, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. It's all because of God's grace. None of us deserve it. Not one of us deserves to be saved. Why did He save me? I don't know. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul asks the question, who makes you to differ from another? Again, he's dealing with that 
issue of pride within the church. What do you have that you didn't receive? Receive, that is, of, of a gracious gift from God. And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why would God save me? Why me, we should ask. We find no reason within ourselves. That's why Paul says, let him who glories, glory in the Lord. We can't even glory in the preacher. Maybe we're saved under a preacher. We can't glory in him. And Paul wouldn't allow that. He asked the Corinthians, who am I? Who is Apollos? We're servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. Without God doing that, Planting and watering will do nothing. Not the first blade will come through the earth unless God causes it to grow. Salvation, you see, is all of God and all of grace. Please don't despise this doctrine because you don't understand it. I'm not saying I understand it. Don't impugn God's justice or try to arraign Him before your bar of reason. Why would you contend against God? You read Romans chapter 9, and that's exactly what Paul seeks to answer. Who are you, O man, to reply to God? Who are you? Understanding these doctrines will give glory to God alone. Nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. It should keep you from boasting in men. It should keep you from looking down on others who have not come to Christ. What do you have that you didn't receive? You, you think you were, you're saved because of something you did? You were wiser, more noble than others? Not at all. This doctrine should also bring you comfort and boldness. No one has so much comfort and strength and boldness as the one who knows that he has been chosen of God. If God be for us, Paul says in Romans 8, who can be against us? Maybe you're afraid of coming to Christ because I don't know if I could last. Well, you couldn't last a day if you did, if you tried. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Also, this doctrine leads to holiness. Some say it, it, it would lead to sinfulness. No, but He chose us that we should be holy and without blame before Him. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1.4. In Colossians 3.12, he says, As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. People talk about proud Calvinists. There are unfortunately, but there shouldn't be. Not one. Not if they really understand this. Because if they really understand, they know it wasn't their doing, but it was God's. If we truly understand grace, we'll be humble. You're sitting here today and you might say, well, How do I know if I'm one of God's elect? What do I do? 
How do I know? Well, what can you do? Well, you can't climb up into heaven and look at a list up there. You can't find your name in a book up there and you say, oh, I'm one of the elect. I think I'll come to Christ. What should you do? You should come to Christ. Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, the ones He's chosen, will come to me. By not coming to Him, you're not proving anything. Coming to Him, you'll only demonstrate that He first chose you. That you love Him because He first loved you. No one will ever lift up their eyes in hell and say, I sought mercy from God, but He refused to give it. That's a lie. That that won't happen. He is near to all who call upon Him. And when you come, you don't need to worry, am I an elect or not? You just see your need. All He requires is that you see your need of Him. That you see you're a sinner. That you're lost. That you're unworthy. That you're hell-bound. And that Jesus Christ came. And if I, He promised if I come to Him, He will in no way cast me out. He's promised to save me from first to last. That He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him. So I come. And I believe. And then you start realizing, I'm one of God's elect. Chosen not for good in me. Waken from wrath to flee. I come to Him. Because He chose me first. He's the one who sent His Son to die for my sins. He's the one that sent His Holy Spirit with that irresistible grace to draw me. And that's why I've come. I didn't come because I was smarter or wiser, but I came because His Spirit drew me. And I know that He'll keep me. That He who has begun this good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You can put all your hope and all your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And you'll give Him all the glory. And if you lead someone to Christ, you don't put a notch in your belt how many people or souls you saved. You realize, just as Paul, I planted. That's all I am as a planter. Or I watered like Apollos. But God gave the increase. And so He gets the glory. Not the preacher. Not the soul winner. But God gets the glory. May He receive all of the glory. Both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray.